What are you thinking about? I do what I do because of my dad. He was a hero. He gave his life for the pursuit of knowledge. Control, you're getting that over. No maid, no valet, no nanny even. It's 1927. We're modern folk. For LA Times Studios, I'm Mark Olson, and this is The Real, where culture and entertainment meet. This week, we'll be talking about James Gray's moody, introspective, sci-fi spectacular Ad Astra, and Michael Engler's big-screen adaptation of the popular television series Downton Abbey. And joining me are LA Times film critics Kenneth Turan and Justin Chang. Thank you both for being here. Good to be here. Thank you, Mark. And now, before we get to all that, though, you know, the festival cycle of Venice, Telluride, and Toronto just wrapped up. Now, Kenny, I know you are someone who attends none of those festivals, and so I'm so curious to know from you, (laughs) do you pay attention to coverage coming out of those festivals? Do you have an ear for, like, the buzz that's happening from the festivals? Yeah, I have kind of a selective ear. I mean, I want to know what's being buzzed about because I want to know what I have to make a priority in terms of my own viewing, but I don't want to know too much. It's like I want to know the buzz exists. I don't want to know why they're buzzing, if that makes any sense. So, you know, sometimes I read coverage just almost to pick out the bold-faced names. Anything beyond that, I don't want to know. And Justin, you, of course, you were at both Venice and Toronto, so you're sort of in the thick of it. Like, how do you feel about where things sort of sit now? Do you feel like this season has come into focus in any way over the past few weeks? I think it has, but the general sense I'm getting from everyone is that it's come into focus, but that nothing is very clear-cut yet. You know, you have Joker, a very controversial and divisive movie, winning, of all things, the top prize at the Venice International Film Festival, which I don't think anyone saw coming. And then you have Jojo Rabbit, Taika Waititi's anti-hate satire, as he's calling it, winning the People's Choice Award at Toronto. That award has been highly predictive and, you know, not perfectly, but in terms of what will win or certainly what will be nominated for the Best Picture Oscar. But you also have movies like Noah Baumbach's Marriage Story being very well received at Venice, Telluride, Toronto, and presumably at the New York Film Festival. I think it's the most festival-traveled movie of the season. I've been What I love about Nicole Loving you She's a great dancer. Infectious. She is a mother who plays, really plays. She gives great presents. Bong Joon-ho's Parasite, which came in third, I think, in the Toronto audience. And I'm just, I love that movie. I'm so glad to see it doing well. And people are predicting big things for that, which will be a big deal because it's in Korean. I'm deadly serious. It feels like things are coming into focus, but it also feels gratifyingly spread out and that anything could happen. And this is only just a few of the movies, of course, that you and I both saw at Toronto. So we'll see, and we'll continue to see more. It's going to be a lot of movies. We're going to keep talking about them for many months to come. But now let's get to the movies of the week. I worry about you. I love you. Please 
please begin your psychological evaluation. As best you can, please describe your current mental and emotional state. I'm feeling good, ready to do my job to the best of my abilities. Now we're just going to turn to talking about Ad Astra, the new film directed and co-written by James Gray. It stars Brad Pitt as an astronaut sent into space in search of his father, played by Tommy Lee Jones, who may or may not be sending destructive electronic pulses towards Earth from a secret hideout near Neptune. Justin, you, you know you saw this film in Venice? I did see it in Venice. And I have to say, Mark, that was an admirably succinct and thorough summation of the plot of this movie, which is pretty hard to distill. It's kind of preposterous, absurd on the face of it. And that's kind of what I like about the movie in the end. I think what makes the movie work for me, and I saw it twice because there's so much going on. The movie is uneven, but the movie is sort of wonderful too. And there is this mix of absurdity and sincerity to the film and this mix of, I think, very scientific rigor on the one hand and just absolutely what is that invention or innovation on the other. The movie is a great contradiction to me and I admire it. Well, let's try to unpack that a little bit. I mean, the filmmaker James Gray has been a real favorite of like the festival circuit for many years now, going back to his very first film, Little Odessa, and then his more recent films, Two Lovers, The Immigrant, and The Lost City of Z. And this is his biggest budget film, working obviously with a huge star in Brad Pitt, and finds him dealing with special effects, this outer space aspect of the movie that he is something he really hasn't done before. He hasn't worked with visual effects like that. I guess, first of all, are you typically a fan of James Gray's films? I go very up and down with Gray. I think it's fascinating to me just the progression of his career. And it's a career that I really admire. And I think every critic admires on paper, even if you maybe quibble with some of the movies. I think that James Gray is typically regarded as one of Hollywood's last few classicists. You know, he's working in the vein of Coppola is a huge influence on him. There's a little of Scorsese in his New York crime movies, of course, although he moves the camera a lot less than Scorsese. His movies are much more classical in their feel and in their construction. What I admire about the movies is that on at least a theoretical level, if not an actual one, He's really invested in emotion and character and those solid virtues of Hollywood craftsmanship. And he makes grown-up entertainments of a kind that Hollywood used to be flush with and now feels like an endangered species. And it does represent this rare fusion of blockbuster spectacle, but with this very restrained, muted, intelligent, thoughtful sensibility that I think is so rare you can't not appreciate what James Gray is doing. So I just think it's really interesting to see Gray pursue his interests and his obsessions in various milieus, various periods. And of course, there is no bigger frontier than outer space, no bigger setting. And now the criticisms of the movie or some of the film Twitter jokes about the movie mostly have to do with the fact that it's Ad Astra with Brad Pitt in search of his dad and he's sad and it's and Brad Astra, Dad Astra. How do you feel about that? As you were saying, there's a way in which there is something that's maybe easy to make fun of or knock about the movie, but then somehow because of the fact that it's 
so sincere, both in Grace telling, but also, I think, in Brad Pitt's performance, that it really sells these ideas and this story that should maybe be a lot more ridiculous or not as good as it is. It totally does, because on its face, it feels like that is the most ridiculous part of the plot. This guy who has to travel ultimately billions of miles to search for the dad who abandoned him. And that's what's going to save the world. I mean, that is basically the premise of the movie. It's a ridiculous conceit that I kind of fell for by the end twice, both times I saw it. And I find that emotional core of the movie much more interesting in the end than a lot of the other things he's doing in terms of the plot. The vision of the future he gives us is very interesting. What he shows us of Mars, which is this very Tarkovskian kind of vision of the red planet with military operations and this underground bunker and i didn't mind spending time there or the moon which is this over commercialized dystopia with pirates running all over the lunar surface which leads to this pretty gripping action scene actually so he's sort of throwing a lot of stuff into the movie and i know mark you're in your interview with him you touched on some of the obviously some of the compromises that came about as a result of script changes and whatnot and just his what happens when you have a really interesting idiosyncratic director who is working on that big canvas and having to deal with studios and notes and things like that to go back to brad pitt who i think between this and once upon a time in hollywood i mean brad pitt is having a year right and this is the last i think this is his best year since his equally astonishing twofer in 2011 with the tree of life and moneyball uh where to me he was the best actor of that year by a landslide and this year it's funny in once upon a time in hollywood he's all like swaggering physicality and here there's this stillness to his performance and what an actor brad pitt is i'm sorry that he has to hold these close-ups these long the camera's just gazing at him for a long time and peering really deeply into his eyes and that's a tough thing i think for an actor to endure that kind of scrutiny and not every actor can hold up to that scrutiny and brad pitt you just feel like his eyes are like these bottomless pools and he's playing a character this astronaut who's very emotionally constricted can't emote can't feel can't relate to people can't communicate severe daddy issues and he communicates all that with such restraint to the point where the thing i remember from ad astro is not even any of the cool sciencey sci-fi stuff it's Brad Pitt's face and just the subtlest sort of twitches in his facial expression, which it's a performance that you just, it makes you kind of sit up and pay attention. And that's amazing. They have a clip of Brad Pitt in the movie when he's sort of getting his initial orders of the secret mission that he's going to be going on. Major, what can you tell us about the Lima project? First manned expedition to the outer solar system, sir. Some 29 years ago. And the commander was? He was my father, sir. The ship disappeared approximately 16 years into the mission. And no data was ever recovered. Deep space missions were halted after that. Roy, we have something that might come as quite a shock to you. We believe your father is still alive near Neptune. A lot of people have been comparing this movie to some of the other recent sad space movies. Interstellar, of course, Gravity, Claire Denis' recent High Life. And Justin, how do you feel about that? How does Ad Astra stack up to those other movies? And is it even fair, you think, to be comparing? I think it's fair. I thought a lot about Interstellar, you know, Christopher Nolan's great film with uh, Matthew McConaughey and, and Anne Hathaway, while I was watching Ad Astra mainly because of the similar father-child dynamic and the idea that you have to go into space in order to the salvation of humanity 
rests on space travel. But I never felt, while watching um, Ad Astra, I never felt fully transported in the way I did with Interstellar or with Gravity, you know, Alfonso Cuaron's film with Sandra Bullock, where you were basically just suspended in the cosmos with her for the entire movie, where you just feel completely immersed in the world of the movie. The outer space stuff is so, is really compelling, don't get me wrong. I mean, it's fascinating to spend time in these worlds. But James Gray ultimately finds his themes in this story and the themes that he's interested in and the father-son dynamic and what he's saying about masculinity, which is really, really great, actually. And I think a lot of people are going to scoff or roll their eyes at that as, if, oh, here's another movie dominated by men. But it's a very critical look at masculinity, I think. I don't know if I would call it toxic masculinity, but it's maybe I'd call it like oblivious masculinity, the kind that is just so self-absorbed and that is emotionally neglectful to the detriment of your family, of humanity in the end. It's about what happens when we invest in this idea of great men great manhood at the expense of everything else. So that's a very profound thing I think he's doing. Well, you had mentioned before, so I I wrote a story for the Times about Ad Astra. I interviewed James Gray and Brad Pitt, and it seems like the real difficulty in making the movie was basically how austere and cerebral of a movie could they make, and how much did they then have to kind of be letting the audience in to sort of be signposting some of the emotions. And also, Gray, I think, was really trying to find a very sort of peculiar balance between the sort of headier aspects of the story and then having essentially a car chase on the surface of the moon or this very exciting sequence where Pitt's character has to basically break into a rocket ship that's about to leave from Mars. So there are these very sort of thrilling like action beats that are mixed in almost one-to-one with these very much more still, cerebral, and austere sort of emotional beats. It is exactly as you say. I mean, and there's one jump scare in the movie, too, that feels a little alien-like. It's a little outer space horror movie of choice. And I don't think that fusion is perfect, but I admire the attempt to fuse those different things. He is going for something in the vein of Solaris, a very Tarkovskian kind of meditative approach to science fiction. But I think that Gray... The entertainer in him won't let him go completely there. And so maybe it's a compromise, but I also think it just says who he is. He wants to entertain you. He wants to give you an action scene. He thinks it's, you know, he he kind you know, in the same way that Lost City of Z, he would throw in these thrilling moments, even as the emotional core of the movie was perhaps what interested him and I think is the most interesting thing about his movies. So, yeah, he's trying to do a lot of things. He loves austere movies, too. He's a well-rounded cinephile. He's not just Mr. Hollywood, John Ford, Coppola, whatever. He really loves a lot of different kinds of movies, and it shows. And I think just the technical achievements of the movie, with the cinematographer of the film was Hoyte van Hoytema, who also shot Interstellar. And it's just a beautiful movie to just look at. And so it's funny how often I feel like we end up saying this, but like it is a movie that you really do hope people see in theaters Absolutely. so that they can get really the full experience of what it is. It's worth seeing in theaters for that reason. And also just uh, much good may it do us, but to convince the suits at Disney that, hey, people will go to see even a flawed but very intelligent, thoughtful, non-franchise movie made for grown-ups on a big budget and a big scale. I mean, it just can't be repeated enough how important that is because it's an increasingly rare commodity today, sadly. And maybe that's a great spot for us to wrap up our talk here about James Gray's Ad Astra, and we're going to take a short break, and then I'll be back with Kenneth Turan to talk about Downton Abbey. 
Hello, podcast listeners. If you're a woman and you've ever considered making your own podcast, or if you do make podcasts, or if you think about podcasts, or if you're starting a podcast, you should come to work at WNYC's Podcast Festival for Women. The smartest women in podcasting will be sharing how they come up with story ideas, how they make money podcasting, and how you can do it too. It's all happening on October 3rd and 4th in Los Angeles. Register now at workitfestival.com. That's W-E-R-K-IT-Festival.com. So... Now let's get into talking about Downton Abbey. That's the big screen adaptation of the the very popular television series. Now, again, this was, as with the series, this was written by Julian Fellows, who had won an Oscar for the screenplay for Gosford Park, directed by Robert Altman, which in some ways was like kind of the basis for the series. And it's directed by Michael Engler, who directed the series finale and has now made the big screen adaptation. Now, Kenny, did you watch the show? Like, were you a fan of the series? I was, uh, you know, guilty as charged. You know, I uh, watched every one of the 52 episodes. And I don't say that about a lot of things. But I was a big fan of the series. I've been looking forward to this, and I was happy with it. It is one of those things, you know, I'm curious. I mean, in some ways, I feel like felt this way about the Harry Potter films and the Avenger films, though it's not often talked about in that context. This is a tough film to come into cold. You know, if you saw the last Avenger film and didn't see anything else, you'd miss a lot of things. Same with the Harry Potter films. If you just saw the last one, there's a richness of character, a richness of background that you only get if you've seen everything that comes up to it. It's not that you can't enjoy it, but as I say, I think it's a richer experience for those who've watched the TV show. And Justin, I know you have not seen the movie yet, but you also were a fan of the television show? I was a fan of the first three seasons, very much. I was just talking to Kenny about this. And then I stopped due to a plot point, which is hardly a spoiler at this point, but which I just, I was, I was like, okay, I'm going to take a break from the show and come back to it. And I actually just started watching it again fairly recently, season four. And I know there were six seasons, am I correct? And I do want to see the movie because I think the show is, what can I say? It's a show, its pleasures are very obvious. And I think that Fellows is just, it's the revival of the kind of upstairs, downstairs, Gosford Park, that entire, the country house genre. I mean, I can't really resist those things. And I am suspicious of anyone who says they can. <laughs> How does it look, Kenny? Does it look gorgeous? Is it, it looks uh, yeah, good. Yeah. You know, one of the things, a couple of things that make it, I think, look especially good on the big screen. Number one, you know, the downstairs part of Downton Abbey is gone. You know, they had to recreate it on sound stages. But the castle is called High Clear in the real world. And the upstairs is real. So you have a real room that's going to not look like a set when it's on the big screen. It just looks richer because it is an actually an amazing space. Also, they've done, and again, this almost sounds like a cliche, but actually it's interesting. They've used drones, which they did not have a budget for in, on TV. And to see Downton Highclere from the air is really fascinating. And also, it turns out, I read in the press material, always a source of amazing tidbits, the grounds at Highclere, there are thousands and thousands of acres. Some of them were designed by a man with one of my favorite names, a great landscape architect of the 18th century named Capability Brown. He is a big name. This is a real person. This is not some kind of onion reference, you know. <laughs> and so Capability Brown is the biggest name in the English landscape, and he designed some of Highclere. So it's great to see that from the air. 
Yeah, I actually, I just saw where apparently the actual owners of Highclear are offering to stay there on Airbnb. Oh, really? So um, <laughs> it, apparently it's difficult to get, they have to approve you, so it's difficult to get in. But you should apply, Kenny. They have enough room? <laughs> <laughs> and so um, now with not only like the visuals, like the way the movie looks, Kenny, did they do anything specific to kind of open up the story for the movie? Like what is the story of the movie? It's an interesting question, and I think they had to wrestle with it because, you know, this 20 of the regular actors from the series came over to the movie. So that's a lot of people to give plot points in a two-hour film. So some people just get a nod. Some people will have more of a plot. It felt to me that there were two main things that happened. One is that there was kind of a situation downstairs. Well, first of all, has to be said, probably everyone who cares about this already knows this. The basic plot is that the king and queen are coming to Downton Abbey to stay for the night. This is one night, you know, speaking of Airbnbs, they're using Downton as an Airbnb for one night, and this is causing an enormous tizzy from top to bottom. In the bottom, in the basement, it turns out that the king is going to bring his own staff, and his own staff are very snooty. The staff is snootier than the king, as it turns out. So my maids and I will not be involved in the preparations. You mean during the stay, you'll be the butler and... Excuse me, I am not a butler. I am the king's page of the back stairs. <laughs> That's one plot. The other plot, the upstairs plot, the main one is that it's about issues of inheritance, which the Dowager Countess, played by Maggie Smith, is always concerned with. And there are a couple of new characters, one played by Imelda Staunton, one played by Tuppence Middleton, another great name, who figure into this as well. So there are plots upstairs, there are plots downstairs, there's a lot going on. Seems rather a waste of money. Oh, here we go. Isn't that what the monarchy's for? To brighten the lives of the nation with stateliness and glamour? To quote Tennyson... Kind hearts are more than coronets, and simple faith than Norman blood. Will you have enough cliches to get you through the visit? If not, I'll come to you. <laughs> but you know, you you know, you can't buy Maggie Smith. I mean, maybe you can buy Maggie Smith. They clearly paid her, a, I'm sure, the salary she deserves for this. But she is far and away. She steals every scene she's in. She did this on the TV series. She does it in the film. She elevates everything to a different level when she's on. Uh, Julian Fellows writes beautifully for her. She handles his lines expertly. It's just a treat all the way around. Well, I have to say, I personally did not watch the show. I've seen maybe a couple of episodes, but I wasn't a regular viewer. And in watching the movie, I was so stunned. It really is an achievement both of screenwriting and I think of editing that they do juggle so many characters in such a really clean way. It doesn't feel like they're struggling to get everybody in there. They, they really do a great job with so many characters. Yeah, well, partly it's because the characters really are so developed at this point in time. After six seasons, they know who they are. They know how they fit. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't have to be gone through. You just cut to the chase. Now, the tension between the sort of downstairs life and the upstairs life, in some ways, that's really the main motivator of the storytelling for the show, that you're getting these two different worlds. And it's interesting to me that so often they're not necessarily in conflict. They exist entirely separate of each other. Yeah, I mean, there's a line in the film that said it's kind of like a swan with stately on top and a lot of mad kind of paddling underneath. And that's kind of the way it works. I mean, one of the interesting things that this particular two-hour episode kind of, and I think of it as just a long episode, talks about is that really 
everyone believes in Downton as a place, as an institution that matters above and beyond, really, even for the aristocrats who own it, above and beyond their own personal lives. They all have a very much of a long view of the place and as a place that's, whose existence is important, whose existence they want to help. And the people downstairs, as well as the people upstairs, both seem to feel this. And now that kind of brings up the question of what do you feel Downton Abbey the movie has to say to audiences in 2019. It's sort of impossible, I think, to not want to read it with some current sociopolitical angle. Do you see that there? Is there some reading of the movie that has to do with 2019? You know, probably you could tease one out. I mean, I don't know if I want to think too hard about how Brexit figures into this, but, you know, I think really the lure of this thing in 2019 and when the show started, I mean, this is an escape. This is a place with involving problems that are soluble. They're not easy problems. There's some, you know, over the course of the series, some really terrible things happened. There was rape. There was imprisonment. There was all kinds of really bleak doings. But everything works out. And then you pick up the newspaper and we have no such confidence that everything's going to work out. And so it's just really very satisfying to see something so well done that you can be confident it's going to work out okay. I just want to say it's funny listening to you guys talk about this. I haven't seen the movie yet. but. It's very interesting to me that Fellows wrote Gosford Park, which was directed by Robert Altman in a way that feels very different. It's all about the incestuous intertwining of upstairs and downstairs and how the boundaries between them are very porous. And it was shot in a way that deliberately confused you. And I love that movie and I still actually go back to it. And it's always a bit of a puzzle to just unpiece the relationships. Whereas it's funny, I mean, how Julian Fellows is just really good at navigating that world, but in a different way. And he's completely, seems like he's, and from my experience of just watching the show, we're here, there's a clarity to it. And as you say, Kenny, this sense of a positive, uplifting and optimistic spirit, whereas the Gosford Park, much as I love it, was kind of a more sour, acerbic vision in a way. It's just you interesting know, to me. When you say sour, acerbic, I think, as you have said, of Robert Altman. <laughs> <laughs> you exactly. know, if you don't think the director has an influence on what screenwriters write, you know, compare Gosford Park to uh, Downton Abbey. Every writer, every artist has something they're particularly good at, that they're better at than other things. And for Julian Fellows, I think this is it. And by it, you mean the class-conscious, upstairs-downstairs, country-home drama? Yeah, I mean, I'm also I'm a big fan of Gosford Park, too. It's not that this is any better, but just that this kind of drama, he's really good at. And were there any performances, besides from Maggie Smith, that really stuck out <laughs> for you, Kenny? Some of the bigger stars of the series are, you know, I'm thinking specifically of Michelle Dockery, really becomes a little bit more of a supporting player here in the movie, and some of the servants are given bigger roles here. Was there anybody that kind of really jumped out for you from the performances? You know, to me, it's a, it turns out to be a tricky role. There's a, a young woman played by actress Tuppence Middleton, one of the new characters. She comes as the lady's maid of the other new character who's played by Imelda Staunton, who plays a lady-in-waiting to the queen. So these are two new people who get into the uh, Downton kind of orbit. I don't want to say too much about who she is, what her role is, but she handles it very beautifully and she's a very attractive presence. You really like seeing her. You're happy that she's on the scene. And I get such a kick out of the fact that in real life, Imelda Staunton is married to the actor who plays one of the... the yeah, so he the, plays Carson. He Carson, plays the, the, the butler, <laughs> the man who runs Downton with an iron hand. <laughs> and it's so fun that she was brought in as a new character for the, I know. For the movie. And they don't really interact. I don't think they have a scene together. <laughs> you know, I, I think this whole thing amuses both of them greatly. 
And at the same time, the movie ends in a somewhat open-ended way. Like, could you see there being, uh, you know, Downton Abbey 2? It all depends, for sure. You know, it's interesting. Julian Fellows had a great quote that I read. I think it was in the press material where he said when he finished the series, what he wanted to do, he said, you know, I wanted to see to it my characters were all tucked safely into their lives, which is a wonderful thought. But then he said, you know, I didn't want to make it too tight because maybe there would be a movie. So he kind of left some doors slightly ajar. And the same thing has been done here. If it ended here, we'd all be happy. But there are little things that you can say, well, I'd be curious to see a second one. You know, I don't have to tell you guys. If people storm the box offices and there's enormous grosses for this film, there'll be another one. If there isn't, there won't. Too Downton, too Abbey. <laughs> no title contest on that. <laughs> <laughs> And that seems like a perfect place for us to wrap up our talk here about Downton Abbey. Just so folks know where they can find your work online. Justin, where are you on uh, Twitter? I am at Justin C. Chang. And Kenny? And I'm at Kenneth Curran. And of course, I am at Indie Focus. And so for LA Times Studios and The Real, I'm Mark Olson. Thanks for listening. Thanks to our producer, Katie Cooper, our engineer, Mike Heflin, and LA Times Studios. Listen to The Real on Apple Spotify at latimes.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your audio. If you like what you hear, please give us a five-star review. 